You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. In one of the Indiana Jones movies, you'll see them every Christmas time, won't you? That's the only time they seem to be on. But I quite enjoy them. But in the, the most recent one, I think it was The Crystal Skull, they are running away, Indiana and everyone else, and they hop in a boat along a river. But they're, they're really out of control. And, and the, wee, the, the old man is really confused, talks about something, about something dropping three times. And they don't know what it is. And then they look forward after everyone scrambles onto the boat and... Maybe you know the scene. Maybe come to the screen. The waterfall's just before them. And they, they drop down in. Amazingly, they all manage to stay in the boat uh, as they reach the bottom of this big waterfall. And, and then they say, oh, three times it drops. And then suddenly they're down again. And they just are cascading out of control. And eventually they, they make it to, to safety on a, a riverbank. And then that scene, they're, they're out of control, aren't they? They're just being wept, swept with the, the current with the waterfall, and it's just going down and down and down. And that is, if you like, a picture of us before Jesus, isn't it? We are cascading along a river, and we're just going down and down and down with no help, no sign of safety, no sign of help. And well, the only way to avoid that is Jesus, isn't it? See, the only way, way to avoid the cascading fall of man is Emmanuel. The only way to avoid the cascading fall of man is Emmanuel. And chapter 7, as we looked at it last week, was encouraging us to follow the Lord in that way, to have faith in great times of difficulty. And chapter 8 really continues in that thing. The, the context is still the same politically. The threat of the northern kingdom is there, but also the, the greater Assyrian kingdom. King Ahaz, remember from Second Chronicles or Second Kings 26, he, he tries to buy off the king of Assyria. He takes all the silver and gold from the temple and is trying to buy them off. And well, that just encourages them to come, actually, in the, 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 in the long term. And Isaiah's word from the Lord constantly falls on deaf ears. The people do not respond. And while chapter 8 continues, obviously, from chapter 7, but in terms of timeline, it's quite close, isn't it? Because a son is born. There's only a few months. And that's our first point. Just quite simply, a son is born. And the Lord speaks and gives Isaiah a very unusual instruction. Take a scroll and write this. Now, I'm not sure if you've ever written down a note in a bit of paper and you've ran out of room. I'm sure Isaiah wondered when he was going to stop writing this. This is a scroll to be rolled out and held out. And he has to write these, these four words that are brought into one. Mahir Salal Hashbaz, what a length of a name. You certainly would need a, a really long scroll, but it's a very puzzling name. Because we know in the Bible, names are very important, aren't they? We saw that in the last chapter with a, a remnant will return, Isaiah's name himself. In the Bible, are really important. So what does this mean? Emmanuel, God with us, is so clear. But this is not so immediately obvious to Isaiah even. This is what that, may, word, that name means. Quick to plunder, swift to the spoil. It's really, it's the same thing twice, isn't it? Quick to plunder, swift to spoil. Quick to, to get the treasure, if you like. It's really indicating the speed of God's judgment that's going to come. That's what the name is. It's quick to plunder. This is going to be quick. It's going to be swift. And Ahaz, although he saw protection through different alliances, trying to buy off Assyria, it's during this national crisis 
that Isaiah's second son is born as prophesied here. And we're told that before the boy is born, Isaiah has to write his name out, and then Isaiah is to name him this, and he's swift to spoil, quick to plunder. And God's message is also to Ahaz here, isn't it? That all of Judah's enemies, they would be, yes, defeated and plundered, but Judah would come as well. See, this document, this scroll that Isaiah writes, it's really showing what's happening. And we understand that in verse, the last verse of that, verse 4, what happens before the boy knows what, how to say? Damascus and Samaria are plundered. The northern kingdom's no longer a threat. That's like the first part of the name. But what's going to come in the future is that Jerusalem and Judah is going to be plundered too. And this son is born. And, well, what's the promise in chapter 7? Wasn't there a promise of a son there too? And there's maybe a, a hint, perhaps, at best, that this is a partial fulfillment of Isaiah 7. There, Isaiah is told, tells King Ahaz, the sign is, there's going to be a son born. Now, we just have come to the next chapter, and the son is born, but there's so much that shows that this isn't Emmanuel, that Isaiah has, not only its name, because we just get some hints that there's some connection, because in chapter 7, we're told in verse 16, before the boy knows to reject wrong and choose right. Okay, and then in verse 4 of chapter 8, before the boy knows how to say. So there's a wee bit of continuity there, but there's discontinuity too, isn't there? Because we're told that the, the virgin, first he's going to give birth, but the virgin's also going to name the child. And here Isaiah names the child. So yes, there's a son born. It's not Emmanuel yet, but Emmanuel will come in the future. See, the prediction of this little boy's name as he grows up is for all people to see just as Shia Jabus was like an illustration of God's word to King Ahaz here's just yet another son another name that's to be a message for all of God's people just like Isaiah every time he, he stood up in front of people and says God, the, our God saves the Lord saves people literally said that it was to be a visual picture and a reminder to them and here it is again and while well, God has just proven again what he had predicted before the child was conceived would come into fruition. Yes, there would be downfall for the northern kingdom. There would also be downfall for Judah and Jerusalem and then in the future Assyria too. But with the downfall of the northern kingdom, we also get then into the next portion of verses 5 to 10 of the floodwaters to come the floodwaters to come. Not actual floodwaters, but the idea of being utterly overwhelmed by an enemy. Here Isaiah is confidently proclaiming what is going to happen. What's going to happen in the future? Instead of what happened in the north being a warning for the people, you know, they see the northern kingdom destroyed and they rejoice rather than repenting. And well, the Lord sees that and the Lord says, this is going to happen to you too. They would still rejected the Lord and instead rejoiced in others' judgment. And see, what we see here is we see that there's going to be an invasion, don't we? And that's pretty clear in the language used, isn't it? The Lord is going to bring against them. He says at the start of verse 7, therefore the Lord's bring against them, and he names the people Assyria and all their pomp. But it's overwhelming, isn't it? Look at what's used there. Mighty floodwaters, the king of Assyria, overflow 
banks run over, they sweep over, they swirl over it, passing through. It's up to the neck. It's all-consuming. It's utterly overwhelming. There's different examples in recent history, isn't there, of floodwaters, of a river bursting its banks and flooding an entire city or villages, isn't there? In America, it's about 10 years ago now, the Mississippi River overflowed and they actually opened up parts of the, 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 the barriers to flood countryside rather than cities. People, like, that's what God is saying here to these people. You know, yeah, there's going to be this overwhelming floodwaters. It's like, imagine our houses flooded up to the neck and you're using one layer of a sandbag to keep the water out. It's utterly pointless. That's what God is saying. This is going to be also overwhelming. Nothing you can do is going to be able to stop it. This is coming. Invasion is coming and nothing can be done. No matter the military plans, no matter how many aqueducts you build it has, this is going to come. But people are still trusting in human preparations rather than God himself. And with all the turmoil to come, all being utterly overwhelmed, what is Isaiah's response at the end of verse 8? Oh, Emmanuel. It's like a cry of mercy to God, isn't it? Oh, Lord, help us. God is with us. That's what he cries out. And there's two cries of Emmanuel here, isn't there? The end of verse 8 and then at the end of verse 10, for God is with us is just simply Emmanuel. Because here, as the floodwaters come in, this land was to be a land of peace, a land that should be at rest, safe and secure. Why? Because it's God's promised land. But instead, invasion is coming like birds of prey circling around a rabbit. The four points is spread out in the shadow. That is what's coming it's impending judgment. And that is why Isaiah is left to cry out to the Lord of the land, crying out for what is about to come, the destruction of Judah, of though it will come. It's not the end of the story. These floodwaters are going to be oh so overwhelming, but in verses 9 to 10, there's more to the story. There's more. So we know that this is about the, northern, or the southern kingdom, verses 7 and 8. But then it's, it's like the Lord addresses the nations. Raise the war cry, you nations, and be shattered. What's he talking about? Well, yes, Judah will be judged. Uh, they will be utterly overwhelmed. It might seem like that's the end for Israel, the end of God's people. But that's not the end of the story. Yes, that's going to happen in the future, but even later. Ultimately, yes, they will lose maybe the war that will come but they will not lose everything. Because the, there's the Lord's, we can be confident in the Lord's control in all of this. All you distant lands, prepare for battle and be shattered. That's the end game for God's people. Although they're going to be judged here, the end is their enemies are going to be shattered. Why? For God is with us. God's people, in Isaiah's day, the faithful few in Jerusalem. It was true for them. They might have been overwhelmed by these floodwaters of Assyria and been taken away in exile later on. But their enemies would be shattered. God would still be with them wherever they were. And what is true for God's faithful people in Isaiah's day is true for the church today too, isn't it? Whatever the church might face, whatever opposition might come, 
whatever we as individuals, as God's people, face in our lives, in, in, in law or in what we feel we cannot say or are not confident to say, what's acceptable to say or not to say in society, yeah, that might be difficult, but the end game, what is it? Our enemies are shattered. All the truth is revealed, and their words will be nothing. The end game is God is with us. He is with us. Their plans will not stand for eternity. They change from generation to generation, but God's will never changes. And God's will, God's plan will stand firm forever. It will. Then thirdly, don't go with the flow. Don't go with the flow. In verse um, 11, again, we get uh, God speaking. And the Lord spoke to me with a strong hand upon me and warns me not to follow the way of this people. It's that picture in Indiana Jones again, isn't it? It's easy to be whipped away with the current, to be brought downstream. Never we were children growing up, we would have walked in Gosford. Some of you will know it, with, with, with my grandfather. And well, there's a couple of bridges, and we used to pick sticks and race sticks down the river. That's maybe an old school thing to do, but that's what we did. We had to get a good stick. And we would throw them on one side and race them to a certain point in the river. And you're always got it if you're, you know, your stick went off course a little bit and seemed to get stuck in a, like a rock or a, maybe a bit of a... a, a a bit of the river where there's maybe not as good a flow of water and it slowed it down. And well, it's easy for us to be swept away with the world, but then get stuck on something, isn't it? We get fascinated by maybe a little part of society, and maybe like that stick getting stuck, and we get stuck in a rut with the world. And we've seen in previous chapters here in Isaiah for the people in Jerusalem, probably chapters 3 and 5 especially, all the bad things that were going on. There was a sense in which all of Jerusalem and Judah were taking part, following each other. They were just like a big mass, just following each other, doing what, copying what everybody else was doing, and not following God's ways. And Isaiah here gets a strong hand. It's interesting, isn't it? It gets a, a really strong a warning from God not to be like everybody else, not to go with the flow. And we need a strong warning too, don't we? Not to follow the way of people, the way of our friends, or maybe even our boss. Don't go with the flow, but follow the Lord. So as we look at verses 11 to the end of the chapter, let me highlight just a couple of things. The first one this. Do not fear like the world. Fear the Lord. Do not fear like the world. Fear the Lord. We are to fear God because he is holy. This is not living in terror of God that he would suddenly strike us down because he decides to dislike us. No. Fearing God means we reorder our lives, reorder our priorities. We place God and what he says about the world first rather than what the world says first. So in verses 12 through to 14, what are, what are the kind of things that we are not to fear? Well, what does the world fear? The world fears conspiracy. Uh, and they, they do not fear what other things the world fears, all kinds of ideological things from seeking to remove biological sexes to, to the climate, all those kind of conspiracies, you could say. And here people are in utter fear today of what people did centuries ago, aren't they? People are fear of what might happen to the world in the future. Whereas God's people, we already know. 
We don't need to get wrapped up in what the world decides to be fearful of or to conspire with or what the world decides to be important. We don't need to dread the future so much that it's an existential crisis. We don't have to have the same fears of the world. Why? Emmanuel. Emmanuel. Instead of spending all our time worrying about how how to take care of ourselves and our planet, we are to fear God and concern ourselves with Jesus. Living a holy life as he calls us to live a holy life. Don't fear like the world. Fear God. We have Emmanuel. We can trust him. We can trust God to care for us. We don't need to go with the flow. We need to live as if God is our God. Forget about everything else and fear him. If we fear God, we do not need to fear anything else. How often is it the case that we are actually fearing the world rather than God? Not true. We have a conversation in work. Maybe some of those topics we thought about, we're not quite sure what we should say or we should say nothing. Maybe we end up out of fear, just simply agreeing to get the conversation away from us because we're so feared. Someone says love is love and we simply agree so that's the same really what a holy God says. Don't go with the flow. Fear a holy God. Next thing. Do not walk like the world. Wait, wait on the Lord. Do not walk like the world. Wait on the Lord. So if we do not fear the Lord as we should, what happens is that we will stumble. If we do not fear God, we will trip over ourselves and fall. If we walk like the world, we will fall and stumble. So what do we do? We wait on the Lord. Verses 14 and 15, especially, um, for both houses of Israel, God will be a stone that causes men to stumble, a rock that makes them fall. And we're told to wait on the Lord into the, the next uh, verse 17. I will wait for the Lord. And that means, yes, being patient. We've sang about it already. But waiting on the Lord is not just a passive sitting down with the arms crossed. But it's almost like waiting a table. There's work to do. You know, we have to be attentive to the Lord focused on what he is asking us to do, what he is doing. We need to be responsive to him and his desires to us. We need to be engaging with the Lord. That's why the psalmist writes so many psalms, that he's waiting on the Lord. It's him praying. See, walking in the world's perspective today, it means to be on the right side of history, perhaps, doesn't it? Walking in line with everyone else. And if we walk in the way in the world, when other things uh, compel us and we follow that, what we soon discover is that we end up stumbling and tripping and falling. Here, Isaiah says that I, our God is a rock that makes them fall. People will stumble and fall on the rock of Jesus. Simple as that. And you can either trip on Jesus and fall over him and forget about it, or you build on him. People who dismiss the gospel as irrelevant or old will stumble and they will be broken. They will be shattered, to use language from Isaiah here in the future. Do not go with the flow. Do not walk like the world. Wait on the Lord. Build on Christ the rock. Why? What does verse 14 say? He will be a sanctuary. He is a, a safe place. He is a secure place. So never the world, and we're fearing the world, where should we go? We should go to the sanctuary of Jesus. 
He said, wait in the Lord, that safe place, that rock and refuge. You have to be going to the sanctuary. And as we look at these verses, isn't it, it's, if you look at verse 16, it changes tact. It's talking about what's going on out there, and then suddenly it's all, it's Jesus speaking. So the Hebrew writer puts those words in Jesus' mouth, and that I will wait for the Lord. I will put my trust in him. Here am I, the children the Lord has given me. And even in verse 16, it talks about my disciples. That's Jesus talking, isn't it? The writer quotes here, and Jesus, as he walked on earth, where did he put his trust? Not in the world, but in his Father. Constantly, Jesus talks about trusting his Father in heaven, doesn't he? Talking to his Father in heaven. That's what we are to do. Although people might not walk in God's ways, although people will reject God, it's still Emmanuel, God with us, his people. He comes to redeem us, to put us into that place of safety and sanctuary. Don't go with the flow. Don't walk like the world. Next one, don't listen to my truth like the world. Commit to the Lord's word. The people in Isaiah's day, and we've seen this already in different chapters, but in verse 19, what are they doing? They're consulting in medium and spiritists. And we know God's word already condemns that. And the only rule for God's people is actually God's word. In verse 20, we're told that those without God's word have no light. In verse 22, that if you ignore the light of God's word, you will be in utter darkness. And this is what God says about people then. And yes, Today, we might be able to fly in the sky. We might be able to send an instant message to Australia or go anywhere we want. We might think we're far too advanced for folks in Isaiah's day, but God's truth still stands. We'd be in utter darkness but for God's word. The world is full of people talking about their own ways, their own truth. It's the story that they are telling themselves to make sense of the world. They're writing their own story rather than looking the, to the author of salvation who writes the, 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 oh, the, the full story. When they are, are believing in their own selves, their own stories that they're telling themselves, the, the truth conveniently fits the time, doesn't it? The truth conveniently suits a bigger agenda or ideology or focal majority. But here we read what happens when people refuse to trust and obey God. People who listen to themselves or to others just like them. They have been given God's word to them in the Torah and the prophets, and they refuse it. They consult with the dead. They consult with magicians and spiritists. And it's hardly surprising then if they then end up in darkness, or it's not. What's the latest craze? It's maybe not mediums and spiritists, but it's all the celebr- a lot of celebrities and the crystal stuff. Crystals, healing crystals, all celebrities. No different evil than what we read here. No different from the evil of the charms of your cattle or your children. It's evil and it's dark. What nonsense. Stay away from that stuff. Why is it nonsense? Why is it dark? Because it's not the light of God's word. People might say it works. People might persuade us to try it. But it's not the light of God's word. Don't listen to what they say in the world. Listen to God's word. We today think, don't we, in society, we are modern. We're scientific. We're too educated to believe in such things. It's really just an amazing concoction of superstition and paganism, isn't it? It's a wonderful cocktail of the world. Do not listen to the world. 
but to God's word. This is what Isaiah constantly appeals for, over and over and over again. Listen to what God is saying and respond to it. For the people here, they are hearing what Isaiah is saying. It means nothing to them. They're looking at their two sons. They're looking at Isaiah. It means nothing to them. They have God's word and picture for me, if you like, with those people. But they're just ignoring it. And while we live in a time where people can just point at everything and find a meaning, no longer do the world's views have to be justified with truth. Everyone's opinion is fact. But we, as God's people, we are tasked to commit to the Lord's word. In Romans 12, Paul says, Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. We are to be able to distinguish from the, the my truths, what I say in society, from what is evil and what is good. How do we do all of that? How do we put a magnifying glass or a microscope down on everything that the world says, all those different creeds that we talked about earlier? How do we make sense of it all? The light of God's word. That will mean that we won't and don't go with the flow. We will reject immoral behavior as it's called out in God's word, just like Isaiah does. Although it may be culturally accepted, just like Isaiah's day where the, the mediums in Jerusalem, it fails to be light. And if it, is to be, if it is rejected in God's word, it does not reflect God's holy standards. Then we must part with the world. We must get off that river so quickly and go to the light of God's word. We must be eager to seek light from God's word. Don't go with the flow. Fear him. Wait on him. Trust his word and our faith will be strengthened. Our faith will be strengthened if we do those things. We fear the Lord if we wait on him and if we trust in his word and follow his word, we will persevere in our faith. Whenever the world is full of discouragements and full of darkness, we will stand. Why? Emmanuel. The only way to avoid the cascading fall of the world around us, the fall of man where we were all on that river too, is Emmanuel. He is the, the son that was longed for Jesus to be born he is the one who died, as Hebrew says, for us, that we would not have to die, that he suffered death so that we might live. So why would you go with the flow? Why would you stay on that river with Indiana Jones at the very bottom? Why would you go with the flow of the world and not follow Jesus? He's our only light. The world has been full of darkness. But as God's people... Emmanuel, God is with us. Whatever we face, whatever fears we might have come into our hearts in a conversation, remember Emmanuel is with you. Let me pray before we sing.